Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you and worship the Lord with you today. My heart's been stirred and moved in our uh, time of worship together. Amen. And God's Spirit is here. He has a word for each and every one of us. Tell your neighbor, God's got a word for you today. Do you believe it? He does. He's got a word for you today. The Lord is speaking today. And we want to hear his voice and respond to him. If you find in your Bible the third chapter of Mark's gospel, that's where we're at today. Mark chapter number three. We're going to look at a text of scripture together. And we'll begin with verse number 20 in just a moment. Jesus has launched his ministry it's been a powerful beginning. He's teaching like no one else ever taught before. Those who heard him said his teaching is different. Because he taught as one who had authority. And not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He was different. His ministry not a, his not his teaching ministry, but also his compassion ministry among the people was one of authority. Healing sick, casting out evil spirits, preaching repentance, and that the kingdom was near. It was filled with hope. He called his disciples, his apostles, the closest to him. And they were tradesmen. They weren't from the elite class. He forgave sins. He, he talked about God's forgiveness. He ate with sinners, broke bread with them in their homes. He was confronting hypocrisy. He was teaching in the synagogues. And crowds from all over Galilee were coming. And other regions, even as far away as the Decapolis and Syria and, and even Judea, Jerusalem. The news had spread there as well. And they were coming to hear about this Jesus. There were three different classes of people that were often his critics. And they couldn't stand this ministry of Jesus First of all, there was a group called the Pharisees. It was a religious sect of Jews. They were very, very conservative. They were very literalistic in their study of the Old Testament law. They were legalists and law keepers, and they expanded and expanded and expounded on the law and how to keep the law and set up all kinds of rules. They were offended by the Sabbath healings of Jesus and not keeping the traditions and the extra laws that they taught. You see, I think that the Pharisees, they probably all sported hats that said, make Israel great again. <laughs> and another class, or the scribes. And the scribes are lawyers. They're, they're part of the Pharisees primarily. They're, 
They teach the law. They're zealous for the law, for the accuracy of keeping every jot and tittle right in the transfer from one document to other. They, this was before we had printers. And so painstakingly, the printing was done of God's holy word. They revered it. Accuracy in their copy. They had legal minds and understanding of the law. And then there's another sect called the Herodians. These are a political class. The Romans had appointed a king in Israel, Herod, part of the family of Herod the Great. And the Herodians, where they got their name from, they wanted liberty for Israel, primarily made of Hellenistic Jews. And they wanted to see a Herodian king rule again in Judea. The Herodians and the scribes and Pharisees, they were often enemies, but they were united in their hatred of Jesus. In the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today, Mark tells a story, and he tells a story in a uh, a Markan style. It is a sandwich story, so to speak. He begins the story. Have you ever met people like this? They start a story and then they divert, they go into a whole other story and then finally get back around to telling you the end of the story. Well, that's kind of the way this is written. It's bookend and in the middle there are he interrupts his story with other stories and parables and teaching and a warning, and a great promise. And then he returns back to the original story. So we're going to look at it because it's very interesting because it gives us in this story some insight into the early thoughts of Jesus' own family, which we know very little about, concerning what they thought about Jesus' early ministry. So look with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, and we'll begin with verse number 20. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that there was not even, they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, well, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them, and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, 
people will be forgiven of all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came, standing outside. And they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters, they're outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful and true. And I pray that today that we might hear it, hear what your spirit is saying to our hearts through this passage today. And Father, I pray that today we wouldn't be thinking about somebody else, but we think about our own personal walk with you and our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this passage of scripture, first of all, I want to talk about the misunderstanding of the mission of Jesus. And we see this here with Jesus' own family. Notice in verse number 20 and 21, he enters this house and there's such a large crowd gathered there. It says he's not even able to eat. They were not even able to eat. Large crowds fill the house. It's a home that Jesus is meeting in. We're not sure whose home he's in. But there are so many people in this large home that they're bringing all kinds of people, needy people, the sick, the discouraged, the downcast, the demonized, those who are like sheep without a shepherd. They were injured. They were alienated. They were, they were helpless. They were hopeless. They were spiritually hungry. And there's so many of them, wave after wave of people, that they're... These are people that often didn't have access to the temple. They didn't have access to the synagogue. They were rejected as sinners. Their issues and their problems and their diseases, they were taught it was because of their own sinfulness or their family's sinfulness. Putting more insult on top of their injury. But Jesus was teaching like none other. And they were beating down the doors to get to him. I'm telling you what, that's a, that's a good model for church growth right there. Preach Jesus and his grace and see if people won't want to come. Amen. And then notice, it was so busy there was not even time to eat. In verse 21, when his family hears this, this is a recurring thing they're hearing. His family probably living near Nazareth, not that terribly far away. 
and they hear he's exhausting himself. He's not even eating. He's not taking care of himself. And his family hears this. Now included in his family, we know from chapter 6, verse 3, is Mary, his mother, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and his sisters. His kinsmen, those who are close to him, his family. And, and we know this also from verse number 32. Your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And so they attempt to come to him. Now notice in verse 22, they set out to restrain him. That word to restrain him really literally means to arrest him, to grab a hold of him, to seize him. They were going to do an intervention, a family intervention on Jesus. Why? This is what they were convinced of. Verse 21, look at that. He's what? Out of his what? Mind. He's lost it. He's gone over the edge. Hmm. That's what they thought. They wanted to intervene, not because they didn't care for him, because they did care for him. But it's a misunderstanding. They, they thought he's not caring for himself. He's lost his mind. He's too focused on other people. He's neglecting himself. He's not emotionally, mentally healthy. And they want to take him away. Because they don't, not because they don't love him. Because they misunderstood him and his mission. The problem is, they don't believe that he is yet the Messiah. In John's Gospel, chapter number 7, verse number 3, do you have your Bible? In John's Gospel, in chapter number 7, notice in verse number 3, So his brothers said, Leave here and go to Judea, so your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So at this point, some in Jesus' family have not really fully come to trust in him and to believe in him. And so there's a misunderstanding of his family. But Jesus, remember, he, know, he full well knows that God will take care of him, doesn't he? They misunderstand him. How many days did Jesus spend in the wilderness after his baptism? Huh? Forty. What did he eat during those 40 days? Nothing. Did God take care of him? As a matter of fact, when he's out in the wilderness, he does become hungry and Satan comes to tempt him and tries to tempt him to turn a stone into what? Bread. But do you remember what Jesus said? He said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds by the mouth of God. Jesus knew that God would take care of him. God the Father. 
He trusts the Lord to take care of him. Jesus taught us, consider the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than the birds? He'll take care of you. Jesus had a right understanding about what sustains us. In the fourth chapter, remember when Jesus has the encounter in Samaria with that woman at the well. Remember the story. And the disciples go into town to look for a McDonald's. And Jesus is sitting at the well with a woman. And remember how he encounters her. He confronts her. And remember how she goes back into town and says, I may have found a Messiah. He, I, he told me everything about me. Remember? Well, she's gone. His disciples come back with lunch. And they said, Rabbi, eat. And he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they, you know, I just love the disciples. They are so Baptist, man. That's awesome. And he said, did somebody give him something to eat? And he said, my food, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Amen. You see, when you follow Jesus, it may seem very radical to the world. But your passion to obey him and to serve him will bring life to your soul. Amen. Can you imagine some of the discussion that might have happened in Andrew's house and Peter's house? When they go home to explain to their wives, we're giving up our fishing business and following an itinerant preacher. Don't you imagine there was a conversation? You're going to do what? You're selling out the business? You're leaving it? Poor old Zebedee, he lost his whole workforce. James, John... He has some servants, and even his wife leaves and follows Jesus and helps support him out of her means. Matthew leaves his tax collecting office, Levi does, and follows Jesus. They leave their occupations to follow this rabbi teacher. It seems crazy to the world, but this is where they experienced God. William Borden was a part of a multi-millionaire family from Chicago. His family had made a fortune in mining business. William Borden, when he graduated from high school, his parents gave him a trip around the world. On the trip around the world, he became burdened for the lost deepened his passion for the Lord Jesus. Enrolled in Yale University as a freshman, began a ministry among freshmen in Bible study. Before long, 150 freshmen were in his Bible study at Yale University. That ministry exceeded by his senior year, a thousand were involved at Yale. He got involved there in a ministry to feed and began homeless shelters called Yale Hope Mission. 
He wrote in the back of his Bible, no reserves, gave away nearly a million dollars. And he wrote no reserves. He enrolled in Princeton Seminary to train for the mission field. He told his father that he was going to go on a mission field. His father said, you'll have no portion in our family business. And he wrote in his Bible, no retreats. When he graduated from Princeton, he felt the call of God to go to the Uyghur Muslims in China, and he headed off to go to China. He was 25 years old. He stopped in Cairo, Egypt to study Arabic so that he could more powerfully be a witness. And there he contracted spinal meningitis and died. But he had written in the back of his Bible, no regrets. Following Jesus, even if it seems radical, there's never any regrets. Amen. Amen. Sometimes the most troubling thing is when you try to follow the Lord passionately, some of the people closest to you discourage you. Amen. They want to hamper you by warning you or manipulate you. I don't know how many young men and young women have felt the call of God in the ministry and they've had their own family throw cold water on it. I remember when I was in high school, yeah, I can still remember it. In my high school yearbook, I used to have people sign the back of your yearbook and put something in it. And one of my history teachers in high school wrote, it was a woman, she wrote, she says, I think God's calling you into ministry, and I'm so happy about how God's at work in your life. And one of the other teachers who I was very close with, and I looked up to greatly, was very skeptical about all things religious, and he circled what she wrote and wrote out to the side, watch out for this trap. It will ruin you. Again and again, I hear people say, I feel called to missions. And people saying, no, 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 no. Don't leave our family. You can't go overseas. Why would you do that? Recently, I was talking to someone about going to Bangladesh on a mission trip. And the poverty that is there and the lostness that was there and the the despairing conditions that are there. A Christian said, why would you even consider going? Well, there's 180 million people that live there and 98% of them are lost. And the majority of them have no access to the gospel and will live their whole life and never encounter a Christian. 
and to go and support those missionaries there and the indigenous workers there, I think it's a good thing. Amen? Amen. You never regret selling out and following Jesus. I'm telling you, you never regret it. Those disciples that left and followed Jesus, can you imagine some of the stories they had to tell? So many people were following him that there was 5,000 men, it says in the Gospels. There had to be over 20,000 people and they didn't have any food. He said, they said, Lord, let these people go home. We, we can't feed them. We don't have enough money to feed them. He said, you give them something to eat. They said, we don't have anything. He said, what do you have? He said, I got a few loaves and fish. He said, well, I have them sit down in groups in the green grass. And they sat down and they took the loaves and the fish. You know the story. Fed every one of them until they were satisfied and full. And how many baskets were left over? Twelve. One for every apostle. And don't you know, they said, we've never seen anything like this before. Don't you think God can meet the deepest needs Amen. when you follow him? Yeah. In Matthew's gospel, chapter number 10, verse 37. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And anyone who finds his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Amen. Secondly, not only misunderstanding the mission of Jesus, but I think in this text we see the maligning of the mission of Jesus. Now we move out of this story about his family to this other group. And it says the scribes who'd come down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebul. And he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So here's the accusation. These legal experts in the laws, these Pharisee scribes, these zealots for the law say the work that he is doing is a work that is empowered by Satan himself, by Beelzebul. Now, who is Beelzebul? Well, that's the word Beelzebub means Lord of the dwelling, the head of the house, the Lord of dung, some say the idea is. It's chief among the demons. Actually, it's just another way of saying Satan. Beelzebub. But Jesus exposes the illogical reasoning of this accusation. And notice what he says in verse number 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? Can Satan drive out Satan? No, that's dumb. Not even logical. Second kind of question, idea. 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Well, I think every Jew ought to know that. Israel was divided and it led to their destruction. Northern tribes and southern tribes. And when within a kingdom there's division, then it's weakened. The next idea is will a divided house remain stable? Notice what he says. Verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Well, I think some of anybody here married may not understand this. You're at war with each other. It's not a very stable place to be, is it? You don't shake your head too vigorously. When the parents are at war with one another, the whole family feels it. June 16, 1858, in Springfield, Illinois, a young representative by the name of Abraham Lincoln gave a speech, and the title of that speech was this very verse. This was prior to him becoming the president of the United States. He was debating with Douglas eventually, and it was a reaction to the Dred Scott case in St. Louis. And what he's saying is a nation divided can't stand. And it's not tolerable to have half of this union slave states and half free states. It's either all one way or all the other. Amen. And that was his whole argument. He uses this verse. And then he goes on, he says... Well, if there's internal conflict among Satan himself, how can that be a victorious thing? It's not. Notice what he says. Verse 26, if Satan opposes himself, this is an internal thing. If within Satan himself, he's fighting with himself, he cannot stand, but he's finished. He's done. He's toast. There's no victory there. And then Jesus brings up another point. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house. Well, he's saying there's a strong man and the strong man has plunder. He's gone out and received plunder and he has those in captivity. But in order for those that are held captive to be released, this is what has to happen. Someone who's stronger than the strong man needs to go in and take care of him. And then he can release them. So if I decided I was going to rob Mike Tyson's house, the first order of business was for me to deal with Mike Tyson. That would be a short fight. What Jesus is saying is, look at the released plunder. The kingdom is near and captives are being released. And they're being released because the king has come and he's stronger than the strong man. Woo! 
It's awesome. What you see is Satan is being defeated. Addicts are set free. The demonized are set free. And those that were discouraged and hopeless have hope. And the despairing have life. And how can he cast them out? Jesus said, I am stronger than Satan. And I came to liberate my people. And Satan's kingdom is being invaded and conquered by Christ. And that's me. And the gates of hell cannot stand against his church. That's right. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 24. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken. And the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you. And I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they will be drunk with their own blood, as with sweet wine. Then all humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's King Jesus. Come to set his people free. Woo! Isn't that good? Somebody ought to say hallelujah right there, man. Wow. And finally today, what is the meaning of Jesus' mission? What is the meaning of Jesus' mission? Now notice with me, beginning with verse number 28, he begins verse 28 with the word truly. Uh, uh, the CSB translates it truly. Maybe your translation says amen, which would be literal. It means ver maybe verily, truly, assuredly. It's the word for amen. Usually amen is said after the statement. Is made. Right, John? Amen. Amen. <laughs> but this time he begins the statement with it. And what he's saying is this is truth. Heads up. Listen. I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins, whatever blasphemies they utter. Here's a great truth all sins are forgivable. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter what you've said in your life, no matter the depth of your crime, the secrets that you hold, the hurt that you have caused, no matter what awful things you've said about Christ, no matter what awful things where you've cursed 
about God, no matter all, what disobedience you've done, no matter what blasphemies you've uttered against even our Savior, the Lord Jesus. All your sin is forgivable in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Peter denies Christ. The apostles deserted Christ. The thief on the cross was cursing Christ. Those that stood at the bottom of the cross wagging their heads and spitting as Jesus is dying on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And Saul of Tarsus stood and watched as one of the saints of God was stoned to death. And he gave hearty agreement to the persecution of the church. And he persecuted and jailed and murdered Christians because they called on the name of Jesus. He, was a, he said concerning himself that he was a chief of sinners. But God rescued him and made him a trophy of grace. And no matter how ugly your sin, don't you say, well, I just sinned so bad, God could never forgive me. How arrogant a thought that is. That you would arrogantly think that your sin is greater than God's grace. Amen. No matter how deep your sin and dark and ugly it is, God's grace runs deeper and wider and more thorough. Dark is the stain I cannot hide. What shall avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Amen. God's grace. My sin, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross and I'd bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Amen. Good. Yeah. But one sin. One sin. Is not forgivable. Verse 29 the way it is positioned has a stern warning. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Unfortunately, all throughout my ministry, I've encountered people who live in great fear that they have committed this sin. And have somehow convinced themselves that maybe God could never forgive them because of something they've said or done. My friends, if you are fearful that you may have committed it, you have not committed it. The Holy Spirit is working in Jesus, liberating, transforming, saving, and they are attributing to Jesus' work which is the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, 
undeniable that God is working because of the way that God is powerfully liberating and setting free. And they are rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting God's grace, refusing to repent. And there's a hardening in their heart that leads to death. And when you reject the Lord God and blaspheme him, There is no hope. If you reject Christ, there's no hope. There's only one way to life, and that's by turning to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Amen. And I'm telling you, this warning is here. This warning is here for us. Not so that we live fearfully, but so that we might run to Jesus. But honestly, those who commit this, their hearts are so hard, they never even think about this. Charles Spurgeon said, if you fear you've committed it, you have not done it. You would have no thought of it at all because you would be only self-absorbed. Finally, who belongs to the family of Jesus? Well, back to the story. Remember the book ends? Here's his family again. Verse 31 and his mother and his brothers came standing outside and they sent word to him. Now, isn't this interesting? Mark uses a kind of a word play here. Jesus and his followers are on the inside. His physical family is on the outside. The inside circle and the outside circle. Now, who's on the outside? His physical family. Who's on the inside? His followers. Now notice here. Who belongs to the family of Jesus? So they send a message. His mother and his brothers and his sisters. Through the crowd. Through the crowd. Into the inner house. And the message was. Your family's here. And they want to see you. And when the word gets to Jesus. He's not being rude here. But he's. Making it clear there's a boundary here. And he knows what they're up to. And he said, verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? Let's redefine this. And then looking, and he looks at all those sitting at his feet learning. In a circle around him. And then you could almost see him do this. Here is my mother and my brothers. And then he clarifies it. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother.
How's Jesus' family, physical family, how are they on the outside? Because somehow they think that they know better than Jesus. And whenever you think that you know better than Jesus, you've moved from the inside to the outside. Secondly, when you think in terms of earthly values, not kingdom priorities, you've moved from the inside to the outside. Thirdly, when the holy becomes common, you've moved from the inside to the outside. And fourthly, when you think that your family heritage or your race or your nationality gives you a greater standing, not a spiritual relationship, but some kind of racial relationship or physical relationship, or national relationship, then you've moved from the inside to the outside. Then who belongs in his family? The one that does the will of God. And this is the will of God, to believe in him Amen. whom he has sent. To repent and believe the gospel and trust Jesus as your Savior. And when you do, he takes your stone, stony heart, and he makes it a heart of flesh, and he writes the law of God on your heart, and you want to love God and love people. And that's the will of God, born in you. And you become a part of the family of God. Some of y'all have never had a good earthly family. But you can be a part of the family of God. Amen. Some of you grew up in a big dysfunctional family. We don't have to raise hands. But you get to be a part of the family of God. Some of you didn't even have a family. You were orphaned and abandoned. But now you can be a part of the family of God. Wow. Some of you grew up in a really decent home. But my friends, you've got to become a part of the family of God. And that only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and everyone's turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Amen. And by his stripes we've been healed. Amen. And Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. And if you'll confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Amen. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this, this promise is for you and for your children. Wow. <laughs> well, I can't help it. I got to quote Bill Gaither. 
I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as I travel this sod. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm part of the family of God. Aren't you? Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the powerful truths that are here. And I pray that today, if there's one person here that doesn't know Christ, that today they might turn from their sin and self-reliance, turn from their despair, and turn to Jesus. If there's someone here that is waywardly gone astray, I pray that they would come home. Oh, Father, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stand with me as we sing.